All right, to begin, I would like to invite up Jared and Pastor Ken. Is Pastor Ken in the house? He is in the house. All right. Who likes game shows? Raise your hand. All right. Okay, move these up a little bit. In the, 19, in the 1950s, uh, a game show came on, one of my all-time favorite game shows, and it was called To Tell the Truth. Do you guys remember To Tell the Truth? The way the game show would be played is they said one person, we're going to talk about one person, but I'm going to have three people be that one person. You have to choose who that person is. We're going to kind of play that game, but we're going to adapt it a little bit, and you'll understand. This, I'm going to introduce myself, Jared will introduce himself, and then Ken will. I'm going to then read you four stories. And as I read those four stories, try to decide who did what story. Three are true, one is false, and each of us did one of the true stories. So in your mind, try to figure out who did what. So I'll introduce myself. My name is Chris Weeks. I am the lead pastor here at this church. I've been serving here for 21 years. I have a master's degree from Moody Bible Institute and a bachelor of science degree in marketing from Dayton, University of Dayton. Well, hello. My name is Jared Doty. I didn't know I had to give an intro, but I am the youngest son of my parents, only son, youngest child, two older sisters. Grew up in uh, Grand Junction, Michigan. Went to college at Cornerstone University and uh, got a ministry degree there. And I have been here as of next month, eight years as the worship Wow, pastor. give me a hand. Eight years. Okay. Ken's counted every one of those. No. Just introduce. We don't have time for jet chatter. Uh, my name is Ken Vanderwest. I am the husband of Rhonda Vanderwest the father of Nathan, Robin, Seth, and Aaron Vanderwest. Uh, those are my best accomplishments, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. I'm going to read these stories. You have to decide in your mind. Here we, here we go. Story number one. I had a job picking up trash in parking lots. On one particular morning, I was assigned a parking lot that was four stories tall. After picking up all the trash, I was on the fourth floor, getting into the elevator ready to go down. For some strange reason... I wanted to see how close I could get my nose to the doors as they shut. I was not prepared for how fast the door shutting mechanism worked because the end of my nose got caught in the doors. I pressed the express button to the bottom before I got in and had to wait four full floors before my nose was released. <laughs> it seemed like forever, and when the doors finally opened, my nose had a huge red pinch crease on either side for the rest of the entire day. In your mind, one of these guys did this. Think about it. All right, next story. I used, I used to play a game in my high school parking lot in my buddy's Chrysler LeBaron convertible. I would sit on the top of the back seat as he drove through the parking lot. I would then throw a giant bouncy ball up into the air as high and as far as I could. The object of the game was simple. He must avoid the other cars, the cement bases of the light poles, and the pedestrians while careening through the parking lot, positioning us underneath the ball and allowing me to catch it before it bounced for a third time. Oh, and we had to avoid all the staff and administration that lingered after school. Which one of these three did that story? Next story. I had a sister that was terribly mean. One rainy afternoon, we decided to play a game of Monopoly, 
Through the course of the game, every role went my way. I ended up owning Boardwalk and Park Place. She landed on Boardwalk or Park Place every time around the board. Well, needless to say, I won the game. After it was over, I was surprised by how well she took the defeat. And then I put my shoes on to go play with a neighbor friend. Little did I know, she secretly filled the shoes with a quick-drying wood glue. After playing, when I tried to take them off, my socks were stuck permanently to the inside of my shoes. Which one of these three is that story true about? Last story. In college, I and a small group of vocally gifted friends formed an a cappella group called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Most performances consisted of singing You've Lost That Loving Feeling over the phone to pretty freshman girls. We introduced ourselves with nicknames after we sang, and then we hung up. Which one of the three is that true? Okay, so, do you have in your mind who did what? Not if you do. Do you have in your mind who did what? All right, the elevator story. Who think I did the elevator story? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five. Who do you think was Jared the elevator story? Raise your hand. Ah. What's wrong with my nose? Did Ken do the elevator story? Raise your hand. Ah, a little bit. All right, will the real elevator story man please stand up? I did that. All right, excellent. Next story. Convertible Chrysler LeBaron. Who thought it was me? Raise your hand. Well, <laughs> quite a lot did. You could see me driving a Chrysler LeBaron. Convertible, cool. Who thought it was Jared? Raise your hand. A couple. And then who thought Ken did that? Okay. All right, will the real Chrysler LeBaron person please stand up? It was Jared. So that means there's two stories left. The Monopoly story. Who thought I did the Monopoly story? Okay, because you know I have mean sisters. It was not me. Who thought Jared did the Monopoly story? Boyd did, a couple did. Who thought Ken had the Monopoly story? Wow, Ken, a lot of people thought it was you. That story is not true. I made that story completely up. Which means Ken was the a cappella singer. Who would have guessed it? Ken, please stand up and sing You've Lost That Loving Feeling. No. <laughs> Give these guys a hand. That was fantastic. Ken was the a cappella singer calling cute freshman girls. Who, who raised their hand thought that would have possibly been Ken? Who thought Jared did that? Yeah. Ken's too young? Oh, Jared's too young Oh, to know that song? I could see Jared doing that all the time. Here's the, point. Here's the point of that introduction. It's very simple. The point is this. In our world today, you never know who's telling you the truth. You never know who's telling you the truth. Is there a way to really know? Is there a way to really discern who's being honest in our world? Even when it comes to people you think you know well, like me or Pastor Jared or Pastor Ken, I'm not sure you know us as well as you think you know us. So when somebody you meet tells you something, how do you know what they're saying is true? I was thinking of three other people. Imagine on this, is C.S. Lewis is sitting here, 
Pope John Paul II is sitting here and a guy by the name of Bart Canpolo is sitting there. These three guys, these three guys are very influential in the Christian world. Bart Campolo, let's say he's sitting on the chair I was at, for many years I would have him, I'd listen to him because I was a youth pastor, and he spoke at giant youth rallies across the United States. His dad was Tony Campolo, a very influential evangelical preacher. Well, about, oh, I'd say about 11 years ago, he decided that everything he believed was all a joke. He even said that most of the times he was up speaking in front of 10 to 20,000 people, he was faking it. And he even makes this statement. Truthfully, I never really believed. I just faked it. If God really is in control, he is an awful, awful person. That's what Bart Campolo now says. He's kind of cool, good looking. Actually, I had slides, but my computer broke down yesterday. Crashed on me. So no slides. I'm sorry. Pope John Paul II, probably the most beloved pope in the, you know, in the in modern time, I would say. Pope John Paul II is known as Mary's Pope because Pope John Paul II, even though he claims to be from, you know, Peter's lineage. He also believes that Mary saved him. He calls, he's the proponent of the co-redemptrix of Mary. He believes Mary is just as salvific as Jesus, faith in Mary. He even believes the, the visions of Magador Yugoslavia. There's seven girls that saw visions and Mary would come and give prophecies as they looked up into the sky in the mountains. I have an aunt that actually went to Magadori. She's a handicap. She it's in a wheelchair. She went to get holy water because she believed by pouring the holy water for Magadori's streams and rivers, she would be cured. She never was, but she spent a lot of money to go there. Actually, one vision, which Pope John Paul really believed with all his heart, Mary said, this, this new holy father will consecrate Russia to me, which means he'll turn all the Russians to Catholicism, and she when Russia is converted, a period of peace will be granted to the world. That was a vision he got from Mary. Didn't happen. He was made a saint four years ago, by the way. And then C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, I quote him often. I think he's one of the most brilliant Christian thinkers. But is, does everything he sa says do we need to believe? Because in his last book in the Narnia series, he had the story about this guy who was named Emmeth. And Emmeth didn't serve Aslan, which was the Christ, the image of Christ. He served Tash, which was a demon. And it says that Emmeth will be welcome into heaven, even though he didn't serve Aslan, because the young man thought he was worshiping Aslan as he worshiped the demon. And some scholars say, you know, we could use this passage to prove that Really, Lewis was a universalist. He believed as long as you believed the truth, even if it was Muhammad, even if it was Krishna, as much as you did, there's still a possibility to be saved. So a lot of people have trouble with Lewis's theology. So is he to be believed? Who do we believe? Bart Campolo was cool and compelling, and I listened to him. He was powerful, but he was faking it. Pope John Paul II cries on a cross. Is he telling the truth because he looks the part? Or C.S. Lewis because he can write some beautiful prose. Is he telling the truth? I'm here to, to argue this today. That there's, we can believe Peter. We can believe Peter and there's, we're going to find out the reasons why I believe we can believe Peter. 
And then he's going to give us what it is we truly should put our trust in and why. So if you can open up the second Peter chapter 1. I think in our day and age, this may be one of the most important passages of Scripture that we have. In our cynical, doubting, lying, deceitful world, this passage has enormous power. Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 13 and 21. And listen closely. Um, I think it right, Peter's writing in verse 13, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And that's a way of him saying as, as long as I'm alive, I want to remind you. I want to stir you up to remembrance. Verse 14 since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter's writing out of a sense of urgency. He has been told by the Lord that he's not going to live much longer. So his word has a weightiness to it. Because he's trying to tell those he loves, I don't have much left, so please listen. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So here's what he wants us to know, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and a morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, by, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This passage is going to be talking specifically about who we can trust and why we can trust it. So first of all, should we trust Peter? And he says, all right, here's why, here's why you need to listen to me. The first reason he says in verse 16 I am not making up stories. I'm not a storyteller. I'm not C.S. Lewis who's trying to craft something that, that it makes sounds good. The phrase here in verse 16, he says, cleverly devised myths is the idea I'm not making up fictitious stories. I was, it was funny, I was sent an article by a friend this week, GQ Magazine, put out their list of 21 books you don't have to read. Did anybody see that article? Basically, GQ Magazine put together 21 books that we think are really important, and they said, ah, you really don't need to read them. And they said, one of those books is the Bible. You really don't need to read it. And the reason why, it's foolish, repetitive, and contradictory is what they said. And they even said, you know, there's a couple other books we suggest. They even suggested a book called Olivia is a nice book about lesbian love. That's a good book to read. So don't, worry, don't read the Bible because it's kind of repetitive and foolish and contradictory. But, you know, if you read this cool Olivia book, it's really a tale of love. Peter did not write his book for readability and enjoyment purposes. The writers, the 40 authors, didn't write the Bible so it would win a literature award. 
They wrote it because it was the truth. If you want to read a funny book, read the book of Amos. Amos is it's kind of a, a raw book. Peter, Peter was a fisherman. His language isn't necessarily going to be the most eloquent Greek. Actually, they say Luke's Greek is tremendous. They say Paul's is kind of confusing. But that's not why they were written. He wasn't trying to tell a compelling story like C.S. Lewis so he'd fall in love with Aslan. He was motivated because he was getting ready to die so those that he loved would follow Jesus. That's why he wrote the book. So he's not a storyteller. Second thing we learn from verse 17 and 18 is he was an eyewitness. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is he talking about? When Jesus was transfigured, there was a couple, uh, there's a place in Luke, Matthew and Mark, where it tells the story, Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transformed. And to his clothes said, were as bright as lightning, and he was seen in all of his glory. It's called transfiguration. And out of the sky, God said, this is my Beloved son, listen to him. And Peter says, I saw it. I saw it. So you could say this, not only is Peter an eyewitness, but he's, his story is linked to history. It's a historical account. He's saying, I saw this. John in 1 John says, I heard it, I saw it, and I touched him. The word of life. I heard him, I saw him, and I touched him. I touched him. So Peter says this gospel story is tied to actual history. You know, like the Bart Campolo guy, if you saw him, I showed his picture, he's cool. He's really cynical. But man, he said it's, it's all fake. Peter would, Peter would, uh, he would tend to disagree because he saw Jesus. And then the third thing we can say is his purpose was not to point attention to his vision. His purpose was not to point attention to his special place with Christ. His purpose was to show how this vision confirmed Scripture. Listen to what he says in verse 19. He's saying, I saw Jesus on the holy mountain. Like, could you imagine seeing that Jesus like lightning and a voice? Could you imagine hearing God's voice? And then in verse 19 he says, yeah, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Meaning, I saw a vision, but what this actually this vision does is it confirms the prophetic word. So what he's putting his trust in isn't the vision, it's the vision confirms the prophetic word. What is that? Verse 20, the Holy Scripture. The Greek for Holy Scripture is graphe, G-R-A-P-H, which means it's written down. Those things are, that which are written down are what we need to place our trust in. Even though he saw Christ's glory with his eyes, he is defending the text. He isn't trying to say he saw something and therefore he's special. You know, a lot of people in our day and age say, you know why you need to believe me? Because I saw something from God. He told me something special. I'm a special person because I... Like my aunt, after she came home with this holy water, she, saw, she said she saw the sun shake when she was there. Why would she say that to me? Because she wants me to, she wants me to say she saw something special. With Peter, Peter saw the most special thing ever. 
And he's not banking his credibility on that as as much as he is the Scriptures that are in your hands. You could say it like this. Peter is saying that what he saw confirmed the text that it has been given to all of us. The vision supports the text. The text shouldn't lead us to look for more visions. I'll say that again. The vision supports the text. It gives corroboration to the text. The text shouldn't lead us to crave more visions. I need more than this. Give me more. Give me Jesus calling. It's more. And as he says, then he says this statement in verse 19, right in the middle, you would do well to pay attention to it. You would do well to pay attention to the written text. You would do well to pay attention to the written text, not the personality of the person speaking it, not the title of the person, not the eloquence of a person, not the raw cynicism of a person. Like we have a lot of cynicism is cool these days. Not even what I would say the visions a person saw. He's saying you would do well to stick to the written text. That's the point. The phrase do well, here's what do well means. The action of trusting the text is the right, good, and profitable thing to do. You could say it like this. You can trust all those other things, but only one thing won't let you down, and that's the text. God's Word won't let you down. I was thinking through it. When it comes to truth, and who do we trust out there? There are thousands of competing voices. We have cable news. Nighttime talk show hosts, nighttime comedians. We have friends who want us to believe them. We have classmates, parents, teachers, textbooks, blog sites, novels, collegiate journals, buddies at the bar, beautiful faces, and all of them are vying for your loyalty. They all want you to believe them. Peter says when you place your loyalty with Scripture, it will not let you down. Where I guarantee you all those other ones will at some point. So, he says, pay attention to it. You would do well to pay attention to it. What does he mean by this? That means let the voice of Scripture be the loudest and most persuasive voice in your life. Let the voice of Scripture be the loudest and most persuasive voice in your life. Or you could say let Scripture correct the error of everything else. Don't let everything else correct Scripture. That's, we live in a day and age now where actually popular opinion has been correcting scripture. You mean to say, oh, that's just an ancient old text. What Peter's saying, you do well to pay attention to the text. There's a cool new phrase, which is so ridiculous, saying, you know, if you believe the Bible, you, you're kind of getting out of line with history, where, where, where history's going. No, it's kind of the opposite way. So why should we listen to it? And he goes, he's going to give us three, three reasons why the Bible is so important and why we need to pay attention to it and why we need to bank our life on it. Number one, and I'm going to give him his three metaphors because it's a light. Look at what he says in verse uh, 19, the middle of it. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So you're in a dark place and you bring a lamp and light comes. In the dark place, specifically he's talking about, really is about our soul. 
Our soul is darkened, and when it, the lamp comes in, the day will dawn until the star rises in your hearts. This is in reference to Proverbs. A righteous man is like the, is like the morning dawn until the full light of day. And when you let this word in, you become more and more. Christ becomes more and more alive in you. That's the point. But Scripture's a light. Shines in the dark. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes. I want you to imagine a dark room. Close your eyes. Imagine it. Oh, you have to see it. Imagine a dark room. You hold out your hand in front of your face, and it's so dark you cannot see it. All of a sudden, you feel warm and wet squiggly things between your feet. You hear a growl in the corner. You feel a drip of warm liquid on your face. You walk away from the growl and you feel a sharp poke. Someone laughs. Powder starts falling on your head. What is going on? Tell me what's happening. Open your eyes. What, what was going on? How do you know? Those, are those worms on the floor or noodles? Does it matter? What's squishing between your toes? You have no light. You don't know. Is that a lion in the corner or is that just a television show? It could be a stuffed animal that crawls. It could be somebody's stomach. You don't know. I'd like to know if it's a lion. That would be important. Is that warm liquid blood or chocolate syrup? That would be important to know. Is that sharp poke, a bayonet, or a kid's toy? That laugh, what was that? The powder, is it a ceiling falling or is it just golden glitter? Could it be poisonous rat killer? Does it matter? Who cares, right? It matters, doesn't it? It matters what's real and what's not. What this is saying, you need light to understand the world that you live in. If you don't, you don't really know how to discern what's good for you and what's bad for you, what's true, what's false. I lived in darkness for the longest time. I just wanted to have fun. I didn't care where I was heading or what is true and what's false. I didn't know it was killing me. And then God opened my eyes and I realized I was offending a holy God. I really never knew that. And then I started understanding how to have peace with God and how to have a life of character. That is what the Word of God is. It's light. It gives us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in this world of darkness. Most of the time when we talk about the word, we get very theological. We say it's inerrant without error. True. We say it's inspired, God's very words, which is true. But, it's, but theologically, doesn't bring a lot of application as much as it's a light. It gives you truth. You finally see the world as it's meant to be. Second thing is it's a line. L-I-N-E. It's a line. Scripture is a line. Look at verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It was not produced by the will of man. What that means, it was God's will. He was telling us what is right and what is wrong. Calvin says it like this. The prophets did not make up what they wrote. They did not arbitrarily blab their inventions of their own accord. Where you could, here's what I mean by a line. How do you draw a straight line? How many ways is there to draw a straight line? Take a ruler, take a pencil, 
Can I do that any other way? I mean, I could draw it sideways, but it's still one way to draw a straight line. How many ways is there to draw a crooked line? Infinite. God's word is the line. I went to an ordination council this week, and on the text for inerrancy, they said the, the, it was a professor at uh, Cornerstone, a theology professor who was getting ordained, so he had very good statements. And here's one of the statements he said, the Word of God is so important that even when we approach Scripture, the written text, we need to be prepared to have what we think is reasonable and allow it to be overturned. What we think is reasonable, we must allow it to be overturned. So here's what he's saying. Let's ask the question, what is marriage? What is marriage? Well, we live in America where whatever is reasonable, whatever you want it to be. You should be able to do whatever you want to do. Marry whoever you want to marry, right? It's reasonable. It's free. We're a free country. So what does that mean? Is marriage a union of a man and a man? Sure. A man and a dog? Why not? Why not? A, a two men and a dog? Is it a man who dresses like a woman and a man? Is it a woman who dresses like a man and a woman? How about a mother and her son? That's happening in Europe right now. Why not? It's reasonable. They love each other. That's reasonable. A person with themselves. That's some people have married themselves. Is it being with a person while maintaining affair with another? Why not? If it brings you joy, isn't that reason? So what is marriage? Our culture has many answers. Squiggly lines. They're all over the place. Jesus said in the beginning, God said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to the, his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's the line. We need to keep it, even if the world wants us to scribble. Why? Don't redraw the line, because when you do, all hell breaks loose. Third thing, it's not only a light or a line, it's a letter. I love how verse 21 ends. Listen to verse 21. This is, this is how, really, it, it gives you how Scripture was inspired. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That means a guy didn't just decide to write down and do it. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit moved men along in their own personalities, their own time and culture to write what God wanted to be written. So it's his letter to us. So in other words, God chose people with their personalities to write his very own words. They spoke, look at the middle of verse 21, but men spoke, and look at the conditional phrase, from, from God. This book is God's letter. It's God's letter to us. How does it work? I really don't know exactly. But it is what God wanted us to know. The, the beauty of a letter, what I found the beauty of a letter is that the sentiments are recorded and they are maintained so when you're away from somebody or when the emotions aren't as strong or the personal touch is gone or somebody you love dies, the message of truth is, remains. It remains. When my dad was in the army, he wrote letters to my mom so she could hear and know his heart, and she still has those letters. 
They're preserved. That's what this is. God's heart preserved. So many of you want more, though. Yeah, I just want a vision. I want a person who makes me feel good. I want a fresh insight. But he's left you his word. This is what that's for. It's his letter. He left his word so we know how to believe and behave. I want to show you, I want to end on what I think is maybe for our time one of the most important words from Christ. Go to the book of John, chapter 12. And I bring this up because we live in a world where you're not allowed to judge anybody anymore. You're not allowed to have an opinion about morality. You're just... But I want to show you John 12, 46 to 50. And Jesus left this for us. These are from his words. Verse 46. Jesus said, I have come into the world as light. It's that same analogy. If he wasn't here, we'd be in darkness. So he came as light to shine. So that the purpose, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That was the first thing for the word. Jesus was the word and then he left the word for the purpose so we wouldn't be left in a dark room. We'd understand. Then verse 47, listen to what he says. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is really what time, of, what time period we're on right now is what I would call, we are, God is in the mode of patient persuasion. It says in Romans that he's, his kindness is what leads us towards repentance. His willingness to restrain judgment is what grabs our hearts. And that's why Jesus came into the world at this moment to save us, to turn us to him. His patience is what leads us to repentance. But look at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So, in this time, we are in a time of patient persuasion, but then there's going to come the last day. People are going to be brought before Christ, sitting on his throne, and he's going to open up his books which are going to include his words. And it is by those things mankind will be judged. So let's just say we don't live marriage the way Jesus said. He said, well, I'm not judging by what your opinion is. I'm judging by what I spoke. Why? Because of verse 49. Here's the reason why his words are so important. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So we are accountable to God's decrees. God set this world up. The Father decided what's truth. Who are we? Who are we to tell him what's truth? That's his point. I'm just telling you what the Father told me, and those things you're going to be judged by. It's just, that's just the way it is. It's his world. And in the clinchers, verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Why do we listen to him? Because his word gives us eternal life. You can look at it like this. God's truth is eternal. It won't change. And it ushers us into his world. One of his eternal truths you could take are like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments 
our condensed version of his ideals for us. As I behold his truth and meditate on them, I let them sink in and I wrestle with them. And then as I do, they should start forming convictions. Convictions are things that, they're applied truth to the world as I see it. That's what convictions are. I take God's truth and I apply it. So for instance, let's take one of the verses, one of the commandments, don't steal. So as I, God says, my world don't steal. Convictions start bringing that down to where I live. I should not take from others what is not mine. That's what it means. So um, I bought my daughter a new bike a while ago when she's a little kid. She put it in the backyard. Somebody came in our backyard and took this brand new bike. That's wrong. You can even feel it in your gut. God put his word in there, his, his law in your heart. You know that's wrong. David stole Uriah's wife. That was wrong. If I look at someone's answers on a test and take them for mine, that is stealing. That is wrong. So I take it and I apply it to my world. So then after I form convictions, they should start shaping my emotions. If I say something is wrong and then I do that wrong and I don't care, I really don't believe it's wrong. You see what I'm saying? Emotions are shaped by my convictions. When my daughter's bike was stolen, I was angry. It was right. It was a right attitude. When, when uh, David stole Uriah's wife, God was angry. Real convictions create emotions. If someone takes something from me that is not theirs and I get angry, then that means I really believe my convictions. You can put it like this, anger and hatred are not the opposites of love and truth, apathy is. So if I don't care, I really don't believe. So if I believe life is in the womb and I'm okay with abortion, then I really don't believe life is in the womb and killing is not wrong. So the more severe the stealing, the stronger the emotions. Taking a paper clip without asking is wrong. But it isn't as severe as stealing another person's wallet, a car, a wife, or a life. And then the fourth thing is emotions shape your heart. Really, we do what our heart wants. Emotions are what really shapes your heart. You could say it like this. Sum it up like this. Why is the world such a mess? Why is the world such a mess? Because it's a mess. Because people really don't believe this book. They really don't believe it. They just don't. They don't meditate on it long enough for it to form convictions. Jesus says it like this, people love darkness rather than light. The darkness is winning because we are being lied to. We like being lied to because it means I don't need to form convictions, which lets me be happy. I can smile because I can do what I want. So we pursue fun and happiness as we skip to hell. I... I once knew a pastor that once received a phone call from an anonymous person who said, a person in your church is dating someone who will destroy them. They have a pattern of finding desperate men, romancing them, getting them to marry them, and then after two years, divorcing them and taking them for all they're worth. You better warn the man. The pastor at first didn't believe him, but he researched it, and when he told the man what he found, the man was so angry, he never talked to the pastor again. The man got married, and sure enough, after two years, 
he was left and broke. People lie. God doesn't. 